Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Pudge. And I'm Tane Kell. And today we're going to continue our conversation of taking a guilty plea and ultimately hopefully get to that whole Collier case, Tane. Yeah, that's exciting stuff. Don't forget to check out the outline that we are using for this and all of our episodes on goodjudgepod.com. In our first episode, we talked about uh, the record and that needs to be made in all these cases concerning the defendant's status to enter a plea and the impact of the plea on the defendant. Now we're going to move on to a discussion of the defendant's understanding of the charges against him or her. You know, you have to make sure that the defendant understands that the charges, and the best way to do that is to say, sir or ma'am, are you in fact guilty of what you are pleading to? That that it's probably easy to overlook and it's almost an assumed thing, but it's one of those things that they might be pleading to a lesser included offense. They might be pleading to, to some hybrid of, of charges. They might be instead of possession with intent, they might be pleading to possession. So it was very, it's very careful to say, are you in fact guilty of what you are pleading to? Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a really interesting case. Uh, one of my favorites really that's come out recently where a judge Really screwed something up. All right, stop, stop, stop. (laughs) It was my case. So now you can tell. Yeah, this case, uh, Nero versus State, uh, where the defendant argued that she should be allowed to withdraw her guilty plea because nobody explained to her the concept of being a party to a crime. Tane, did you know that was a thing? I mean, they cited this case called Henderson versus Morgan, a U.S. Supreme Court case from 1976, and I wasn't really reading the advance sheets in fifth grade, but I, I, I didn't know that was even a thing, honestly. Do you ever talk to a, a defendant about the fact that they might not be directly responsible for committing the crime? They're just pleading as being a party to the crime? I didn't know about this at all until you called up and started ranting about Nero to me. But just so that we're clear, I was not rant, ranting about our friends on the Court of Appeals. No, you said they were brilliant for knowing what was in the 1976 advance sheets. <laughs> you know, Tate, on TV, there's this, like in Law and Order, they say, well, the defendant must have an allocution or must allocute where the defendant must be expected to recite the crime that they committed. You that, know that ain't going to happen. Well, here's the problem. <laughs> they are going to mitigate. Yeah. And they are going to miss an element or they're going to say, I didn't know it was cocaine because their mom's in the room or right. whatever. I think it's a far better practice. And we don't do any of this allocution business. No. I think it's a far better practice for you to have, say, the prosecutor put on the record the factual basis and ask the defendant, do you admit that you're in fact guilty of that? I think it's safe to say that the defendant is making a different record than we are. Yeah, absolutely. They have to go home one day. Right. Now, that is different than a proffer. Right. Now, a proffer is where a defendant is one of their conditions or part of their plea agreement is that they're going to provide truthful testimony in the eventual trial of a co-defendant. And the state usually wants to get on the record what the defendant's story is so that while he is highly motivated to get favors here because he's trying to get his plea agreement done, we want to make sure that whatever he's going to say, you actually have sworn testimony. Remember, that's why we swear him. 
and so that you provide sworn testimony. Some people may call that process something else. I understand that, but we call it a proffer. Do y'all call it? What do y'all call yeah, it? Yeah, we call it a proffer. I've heard people refer to it as an allocution, but technically that's not the correct term for it. Now, don't get confused here, folks, though. We're not saying that you shouldn't put a recitation of the factual basis on the record. That's a different issue for, you know, for a different discussion, and we, and we will talk about that. Just understand what we're saying is we don't make the defendant stand up there and uh, you know, eloquently state what he's uh, pleading guilty to. In yeah, the case. I could just that see just, that happening. Uh, I mean, you you basically have a defend hand the defendant the microphone. So tell us what you did. Train, well, I woke up that morning. Train wreck. You know. Yeah. It, it just it, it just it, it could be disastrous. Yeah. Yeah. The next issue that you need to do is you need to make sure the defendant on the record understands the minimums and maximums that, that he or she is facing. And that's actually required under Uniform Superior Court Rule 33.8. Hey, wait, let me ask you, how many percentage-wise, what percentage of the time is that little blank on yours where it says minimums and maximums? How many times out of 10 is that left blank? And and it's that or it's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're going twelve months oh, on an armed robbery or something. Oh, well, yeah. but our the, the sentence is, um, you know, there's a plea agreement to five years on probation, and they've written on the form that the maximum sentence is three years. And you're like, okay, I, yeah, I'm not good with math, but I, those numbers don't jive. Yeah. And, and uh, uniform Superior Court Rule 33.8 again is the is the rule we're looking at here, and you're supposed to put in there and tell the defendant uh, what the what the particularly what the potential maximums are on the sentence, but also if there are any mandatory minimums, uh, they need to know that too. And there's a there's a there's an interesting case out there that talks about the bad things that can happen if you if you say the wrong thing or if it's written down wrong on your sheet of paper that you're reading from and tell them about that case the gay case you know sometimes people go golly that judge wasn't very smart no that judge was probably very busy that judge was probably was was trying to do 18 things like we all are but in this particular case the defendant was pleading guilty in an open plea. Do y'all call that an open plea if it's non-negotiated? We call it non-negotiated okay. normally, but yeah, open plea, I've heard that too. Okay, so we if it's not negotiated, then... Blind we, plea, sometimes so, I've heard yeah, that Yeah, I've heard too. that too, yeah. So it's really important you get these, these minimums and maximums right in a blind plea or an open plea. The judge, in this particular case, told the defendant the sentence range for armed robbery is 10 to 20 years. And then what did he do, Wade, when he sentenced him? Sentenced him to life in prison. <laughs> Which might and, have been a shock to the defendant thinking, or of course, perhaps the judge knew something that the defendant didn't know, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe 20 was. Uh, but but as you one. know, in armed robbery, the, the, the sentence range is minimum of 10, maximum of 20, or life. And so what happened was the judge just forgot the or life part. And the defendant, in, by looking at a cold transcript, could say 10 to 20 was what the judge said, so I thought the maximum was 20, so I was good with that, and then I got a life sentence. But anyway, it, it can happen, and, and I, there's no criticism of the judge. It's almost no. funny because I could, I could absolutely see that happening to me. Oh, yeah. Well, I've read the uh, minimums and maximums that the prosecutor or the defense attorney have written on the sheet before, and then two or three questions later thought, wait a minute, that's not right. And yeah. I'll go back and say, wait a minute, I think we got the minimums and maximums wrong on that. And we'll go back and I keep a little cheat sheet up on my bench that uh, has all the current minimums and maximums mm -hmm. on it. And I think we have uh, uh, we can put that on goodjudgepod.com. Uh, yeah, we can. So this may be a weight-only thing, and I understand if other people don't do this. Um, 
there are occasions where the defendants plead guilty to reduce charges. Sometimes what they are pleading to is no more a lesser included offense than a man in the blue sky. They are pleading to disorderly conduct from possession of cocaine or something. And I don't really like those kind of pleas, but they might be pleading to theft by taking from burglary. And th there's some cases that say those aren't lesser included. I don't want to get that reversed on appeal. So I actually, whenever we're pleading to something that wasn't originally charged, mm -hmm. I always make sure that on the record there is a waiver of any defects in the charging instrument. Yeah, and this will come up in other scenarios, too, where, for example, they're trying to get a bunch of, of cases wrapped up into one, and one of the cases, um, let's say, the defendant's name was listed wrong, you know? And, and he says, well, that's not my correct name. You need, you just need to say, well, counsel, does the defendant waive any, any potential defects in the charging instrument? Otherwise, the law would re literally require the state to go back, re-indict the case with the correct name of the defendant, and start the process over. And even the defendant doesn't want that in those cases. But you as a trial judge need to make sure that if, if you're aware of any defects or anything like Wade says where they're changing the charges to which the defendant is pleading, that they're going to waive any defects so that there's nothing that will cause a technical problem problem down the line. You know, Tane, you mentioned to me that, that in your jurisdiction, a lot of times felonies are pled or people plead guilty to felonies on an accusation. Right. Like, like they're, do, they're pleading to a whole nother crime or they're, they're reorganizing the crimes and going to null process that indictment to, to move forward on this accusation. Exactly. Or perhaps there, for example, they want to get first offender treatment. And so they're combining two different offenses that were in two different um, indictments originally into one so that they can take advantage of first offender. And sometimes the state will agree to something like that. So what they'll do is draft an accusation for an offense that normally is not allowed to be pled on an accusation. And what the state then has to do, or, or I as the trial judge has to do, is say to the defense attorney, do you waive formal indictment and plead this on an accusation? And, and they, they can do that, and you just have to make a record of it. We do the same thing if the case, for whatever reason, has never been arraigned, mm -hmm. and we're kind of arraigning it guilty, so to speak. Right. Then we actually put on the record that there's a waiver of any further discovery rights and, and things of that nature. So... Tame, we've gotten through all of those those things that the, the defendant's status and the impact and the understanding of rights and everything else sort of fit, fit I guess, best under an other category. Right, right. So There's let's just, miscellaneous things we need to cover as well. Let's rip through some of these right quick of things that you're going to cover. Um, you have to make sure the defendant is entering a knowing plea, right. that it's done knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily knowingly requires there to be a factual basis, right? That's right. And so, you know, as I said a minute ago, one of the first things that's done in a plea before me is the uh, state recites the factual basis upon which the defendant is pleading. And, and I've had to train some uh, DAs, that doesn't mean you give me every single minute detail the of the blue. arrest. Oh, I get that. I've had that. And, and you're just like, no, 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 no. I just need to know. The defendant was sitting on the left. Right. I need a simple factual basis that relates to what he's pleading to. Do you have your your parties stipulate there's a factual basis? Um, yeah, we usually do. And it, it, that normally is something that the state goes through. Um, it's something it's the way that they're trained in our office. But if they don't, I'll normally say 
counsel for the defendant, are you stipulating to a factual basis? They don't have to stipulate to the same facts the state recites. They just have to say there yeah, are there, sufficient there facts. are sufficient facts to prove the crime that to which the defendant is pleading. You know, I think it's a good idea to do it so that you don't gloss over venue or something that that's just not obviously going to be something fresh on your mind. So, but but now a stipulation is is admitted to that the facts support that claim. But I still want to know something about the facts. I just now sure. am quitting worried about checking off elements of the crime. Yeah, I agree. And sometimes, I mean, it, it, you need it because you need to understand why there's a plea being entered at all, for example. I mean, I, here, here are the facts we're presented with, Judge. This may be painfully obvious, but in that factual basis, I go ahead and deal with, is there a sentence recommendation? If so, tell me what it is. So that clearly by lawyers speaking, not defendants speaking, that there is a clear understanding of what the plea agreement is. And then I make sure that the lawyers both agree, yep, that's a plea agreement. And I usually look down on my written form and make sure that sort of jives with all of that. Can I go back and ask you something, Wade? Uh, because I think this is important to me. Sure. Do you, at the end of all of the the plea, uh, you know, once all of those facts and things are covered, do you make a finding on the record that the plea was freely, knowingly, and voluntarily entered? At the very end, after I've gone through everything and made sure the defendant signed this form and initialed it and knew what he was doing on that, yeah, I make an actual finding. I actually enter a written form, and I, th I think that it's really valuable to do the written form because if this case ever comes back as a 404B or a recidivist punishment, Having on the record that the judge made a written finding that the plea was knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily entered is going to help in the long run, in my opinion. I agree with you, and I do the same thing, and I actually say it out loud as well. I fill out the form and say it out loud. All right. So moving forward now is the, the whole issue about the right of the defendant to withdraw his or her plea if that recommendation is not followed. Now, to be clear, this only applies to negotiated pleas, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, and, and it's really kind of important because um, it, it makes sense. I mean, these people have gotten together, both sides have made a deal, and if you as the judge come in and blow up their deal, then the defendant ought to be able to back out of that. I mean, that's basically what the law says. And the state does too, really. That's right. I mean, the state doesn't have to go forward with the plea if you're not going to follow it basically to the letter. Yeah, I mean, if you want to give a lighter sentence than what the state has recommended, then the state can say, eh, Judge, that's not our deal. We need, to re we need to talk about this some more. We need to go on to trial. So let's talk about this. What if you intend to reject a plea? Let's, 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 let's focus on the stereotypical situation where the, you don't think that the, 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 the sentence is appropriate. What does the law say that you've got to tell the defendant? Well, the first thing that you need to make sure that they understand is that you're not bound by the recommendations that are being made in the negotiated plea. Um, secondly, you need to inform them very specifically that you are going to reject the plea negotiation and that they have a right to withdraw their plea if you reject the negotiation. So if you say to the defendant, I'm going to reject the negotiation, you don't have to tell them why you're rejecting and nor really should you because we get back into that issue of not being involved in the plea negotiations so wade how do you handle that if you're going to reject a plea for a particular reason well rule 33.10 of the uniform superior court rules the cases that have have interpreted that said this is a bright line rule it requires express or explicit compliance and basically you are required to tell the defendant that you are going to reject the plea now, you have the right to withdraw before I impose sentence. If you don't withdraw, 
then I am going to impose sentence. But it's not going to be the same as what you negotiated. And I, I would have to go look at 3310 to tell you what the exact language is, but that's pretty close. And I believe that, that the, the failure to follow that fairly explicitly will result in, an, in a reversal. We put some of those cases in here as well. Well, and let's think about it, Wade. You either let them withdraw the plea then or the appellate courts are going to let them withdraw the plea later and you're going to end up in the same place. Correct. Now, one of the things that I had to— And that is not a knock on the appellate courts. They are doing a darn fine job. esteemed brethren. Absolutely. And sistren or whatever Love that word them. is. They're awesome. You know, when I first started, we had some prosecutors who had come from other backgrounds and they wanted to have their plea agreements include, you must do 80 hours of community service at the landfill or, wah, wah, wah. you know, well, when I did not want to do that, I'm rejecting that plea. I mean, that is a negotiated point. Right. If, if, if the plea is, for example, if the, the agreement is that the defendant will get first offender. Were you able to... Uh to retrain your prosecutors, Wade? Yeah. How'd you it, do that? I rejected some pleas. And I said, I am not going to get involved in where the community service is going to be imposed. So I reject this plea. You have a right to withdraw your plea. Would you like to do that, Mr. Defendant? Yes, I would. Waste of time. But you waste time a couple of moments to try to make a larger point. All of my prosecutors now recommend sentences terms and conditions of the, of the probation left to the discretion of the court. So now if I get halfway in and that $500 fine ought to be $300 or no fine or $2,000 or whatever, then I now have flexibility and I'm not having to reject a plea agreement in order to get there. But I had to go backward to go forward, as they say. Right. So Habeas corpus rights. I would, if I were to take a poll of some of our colleagues at one of our conferences and I'd say, all right, how many of you at the end of your plea colloquy tell the defendant that they have four years to file a habeas corpus petition if it's a felony, one year if it's a misdemeanor, 180 days if it's a traffic offense? I don't think many hands would be up. True. Do you do it? No. Um, in fact, at the end of my plea, what? I, I simply say, counsel, have you informed the defendant of his, of his rights to habeas corpus? And they actually, well, and they actually sign a form, though, in my court that tells them what felony habeas corpus rights are and what, oh. and what state habeas corpus, I mean, what uh, misdemeanor habeas corpus rights are. So they've been informed. I'm simply checking with the attorney to make sure they've gone over it with them. A couple I, things. I don't go over it with them. Couple things. Nine, excuse me. OCGA nine fourteen forty two C and D basically require that we do that, and the reason is this: otherwise, the defendant can file for habeas corpus forever, right? Even long after they have they are no longer under supervision or whatever. And it's just a thing to make sure that you do it. And I and I got a funny feeling. You talked about your form. I got a funny feeling that after we finished talking about Collier for a while. We may end up putting some more things on your form. Oh, I think you're exactly right. Let me also say one other thing, and it doesn't relate to guilty pleas, but when you are sentencing a defendant, don't forget that you're also required to advise them of their habeas corpus rights, because at that point, trial counsel won't have told them. There's no reason for them to have had a habeas discussion before you sentence them. So You mean after a, a trial? Yeah, after oh, okay. a trial, yeah. 
So now we're going to go talk a little bit about sentencing. And the first issue that comes up is merger. And wait, my, wait, we are not talking about merger again. Stop it. It's your favorite subject. Stop it. I'm sick of it. You know, we've talked about merger so much that, <laughs> that um, it's sort of uh, painful. I'm not we, talking about it. We've done two whole episodes on merger, and we've come up with some rules, and we've talked about it at, at, at conferences several times. So, folks, just know this. If you're mer- ever at a cocktail party with Wade, <laughs> just bring up merger. And, and see what happens. No, I'll probably the top of my head will come off. Honestly, um, merger does apply to a guilty plea. Don't forget that. But if you come up with something in merger and you have some questions, we, we really have gone over this pretty exhaustively in another episode. So go and check that out. But it does apply to plea agreements. And it can't be waived. It can't be waived. Um, recidivism. Now is where I was going to talk a little bit earlier and, and kind of got ahead of myself. 1710-7A and C. Now, under 1710-7A, if the notice is filed, the court must sentence the defendant to the maximum sentence allowed by law, but that sentence can be probated, suspended, etc. Correct? Yes. 1710-7C, the maximum sentence must be imposed because it's A and C at that point. And any time that you order that defendant to serve in confinement must be served without the possibility of parole. Or to the door, as they say. As, as, the, as the kids say. Now, there is one little fun fact here. If the maximum sentence is life in prison, you can't probate any portion of a life sentence. So even if the defendant has only one prior felony, if subsection A notice is given... You must sentence that defendant to life if life is the most serious penalty that can be imposed for that crime. And you cannot probate it. So don't think that 17107A that says some of it can be suspended, etc., sort of trumps the rape statute. It doesn't. If the maximum sentence is life, you cannot probate any portion of a life sentence. So just know that and, and, and don't think that this changes that rule. And there's something really important when you're talking about recidivism, Wade, and that's make sure that the supporting convictions are part of the record if the defendant is being sentenced under either subsection A or C. You know, I'll be honest with you. I don't know that we are do a great job of that. I don't think anybody's doing a really good job of that, but it is a requirement and it's something that we all need to be aware of. Yep. You know who I feel sorry for? Who now? Subsection B. We never talk about subsection. The poor redheaded <laughs> stepchild of, of recidivist yeah. statutes. Now you're going to make people go look up and see what that says. Well, they're going to have to look it up on their own because we're not talking about it. Sex offenses. You're now at sentencing. If you have a sex offense, remember we talked about issue spotting. This needs to be on your radar. Most sex offenses require a split sentence with at least one year on probation. Why is that, Wade? Tane and I seriously have had conversations. He's laughing about this. We, we've seriously had conversations about this, and we can't figure it out. No idea. Because you could make somebody register as a sex offender while on parole. So why it must be probation, I have no idea. And I'm, and I'm sure there's a logical reason. I just don't personally know what it is. And so, so you, just do it. So just do it. <laughs> now, here's the thing. With a sex offense you must give at least one year on probation except for, Tane, this is a pop quiz for you. 
what two sex offenses specifically are not on that list that you must give a split sentence to? Um, Go to page 22. Page 22 says aggravated child molestation or rape. All right. Now, this is seriously a pop, pop quiz. Without This isn't on the sheet. What's the maximum sentence for those two crimes? Life. And you can't probate Li- a part of a life sentence. That's why they're not on the list. Ah, that makes perfect sense. I know. Occasionally, this does make sense. All right, moving on. Probation conditions. You know, Tane, there's a difference between general and special conditions of probation. Sure, Wade. The, the main difference between the two is in a special condition, if there's a violation, you can revoke up to the, to the maximum amount, up to the full sentence. With respect to a, a um, general condition uh, or technical violation, you can revoke up to two years um, with respect to that. And if it was just a new offense, you would be limited to the amount, the maximum sentence you could get for that new offense. So. Right. The thing about a special condition is the defendant must be aware that it's a special condition. Generally, you need to say it. The forms say that all of those numbered paragraphs on our new sentencing forms are special conditions. It's much better if you say, look, if any of the following are violated, the entire balance of your sentence can be revoked, even if it's not a new crime per se, and then go through your list. Right. Now, there's another issue that comes up frequently, Wade, and that is Fourth Amendment waivers. Can I impose a Fourth Amendment waiver if it's not part of a negotiated plea? I don't think so. You know, you and I have talked about this at some length. Most of the cases say you can't use a Fourth Amendment waiver to conduct a search later because they're always they're not over about the probated sentence. They're always on the new drug offense or the new we found the gun offense. And they say, hey, we, we went in the house because we had a Fourth Amendment waiver as a part of his probated sentence. So then they go back and examine whether the defendant was aware that he or she was being sentenced with a Fourth Amendment waiver. I know, I, I take the position that they need to consent to it. I agree with you. I, I just don't think that you can enforce upon an individual a waiver of a constitutional right without their consent. In other words, that, that just doesn't, something about that doesn't sit well with me, and I just don't feel like I have that ability as a judge. I think some people might argue that it would be sufficient if they knew that there was a Fourth Amendment waiver, that they were specifically explained. I'll be honest with you. It's, it's much smarter to me to just say that it must be consented to as a part of the overall plea negotiation and get your staff and the folks that appear in front of you to understand that's sort of how you're going to roll. And I, you know, I, I know that there's a reason for these, but they do seem to get overused. I mean, I can understand the necessity for having Fourth Amendment waivers in drug cases where you're trying to keep make sure that people aren't hiding drugs or, or cases where maybe weapons have been involved or something like that. But, you know, I get them and the oddest cases and you know if they agree to them it's not up to me to say that they shouldn't but uh i don't know it just gets used a lot so first offender and conditional discharge there is a lot of misunderstanding i think about first offender and conditional discharge you know first offender let's start there it's it's found at ocga 42-8-61 again the new statute says in every felony sentencing Defense counsel is required to tell his or her client about first offender and inquire whether they want to use first offender. Because, you know, first offender requires the defendant's consent, right? Right. But then if the defendant is pro se, which doesn't happen very often, but if the defendant is pro se, the judge is under an obligation. Well, I just thought it was just easier for the judge just to take the obligation in both both circumstances and say, 
counsel or defendant, do you want a first offender sentence? Then look to the state and say, or the, and they say you can also ask probation. Are they eligible? But Tane, the big thing about this obligation that you have to ask, you still have sort of the judge's discretion not to grant the first offender, correct? Yeah, right. Don't misunderstand. You have to ask if they want it, but that doesn't mean that you have to give it. And so I think in the case where they are, like you said, I just go ahead and ask the uh, counsel, you know, is he asking for first offender? Then I ask the state, is he eligible for first offender? And then at the end of the sentencing, I tell them whether I'm giving them first offender or not. You know, Tane, I, I don't think the same language is in the conditional discharge statute, but if there, it, 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 I just have decided, is your client asking for first offender or conditional discharge? I go ahead and put it all out there. I don't want to have too. it come back later when somebody goes, oh, you didn't ask about conditional discharge. Do it the same way. Um, remember a defendant has to consent to a first offender sentence. You can't make them have a first offender sentence. They have to want it and and ask for it. And and I just understand, I love first offender because first offender gives me the ability to bring them back, adjudicate them guilty and re-sentence them up to the maximum on each of those offenses. So it's kind of a nice hammer to hold over their heads. With credit for time. With credit for time, yeah, whatever they've served. But the, I, I will tell you that, on the other hand, if a defendant really is done with this life, it's cool not to have a record around your neck from something you did when you were 18 if you can avoid it. Absolutely. Or even if you're 45 and you've gotten to that point and you haven't had any prior convictions. You've had a and, bad day. Yeah, you do something really stupid uh, and, and you know, you want to clean up your record. I think that's pretty cool. Now, do understand one thing. You need to use the right language when you're giving first offender conditional discharge, and that is that with respect to the charges, you're not finding them guilty. You are withholding adjudication. That's the language you should use. You're right. And that Hooslon case caused me a lot of concern because I had to read it several times. Then I had to call David Emerson and he read it to me. It's kind of like calling your daddy and he'll <laughs> right. explain it to you. Um, he said, now wait, just yeah. sit down for a second yeah. and let me tell you about this. But he actually did help me understand that 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 Hooslon case. But that, that cites it there in the outline. Where can they find that outline? At goodjudgepod.com. You know, there are several offenses where you just can't get first offender. And I th- th- look at 42-8-60 on this, which is not obviously not 61. But just as a general rule, Tane, let's burn through sort of the general categories, the things you cannot give first offender for. Yeah, it starts off with your serious violent felonies. Uh, those are defined in 17-10-6.1. That's your murders, your armed robberies, your kidnappings, your rapes, your aggravated child molestations, except where the victim is between 13 and 16 years, and some other offenses that fall under serious violent felonies. Then you have sexual offenses as defined as 1710 6.2, aggravated assault with intent to rape, false imprisonment, but they do all of the sex crimes have, if if it's relevant, they have what a lot of people have called the Romeo and Juliet exception, that if it's a, a relatively older victim and a relatively younger defendant, they wouldn't apply there. But it would include sodomy, statutory rape, Child molestation, enticing a child, sexual assault against a person in custody, incest, sexual battery, etc. Right. Sex trafficking is specifically excluded, as is neglecting a disabled adult, sexual exploitation of a minor, electronically furnishing obscene material to a minor, and computer pornography. You know, any any case in where the law enforcement officer is a victim, including aggravated assault, aggravated battery, or felony obstruction, where there is actual physical serious injury, all of those are excluded, but the one that comes up more often yeah. 
is DUI. DUI, and that's uh, 40-6-391, says that you cannot give uh, first offender or conditional discharge on a DUI. Tane, you touched this a minute ago, but if the case, if the defendant has multiple charging instruments, even if the case is sentenced on the same day, they can only get first offender on one of those charging instruments. That's exactly right. Now, if you have a really generous prosecutor or if they've really worked out a good deal, they may agree to re-indict the case or do a new accusation and, and include all the offenses on one, and then potentially they could get first offender. But if it's separate charging documents, only one of those charging documents can be given first offender treatment. You know, to our judge friends, please do not get in a habit of putting on the record that I don't give first offender in robbery cases or in shoplifting cases or whatever. As my mom used to say, there are some things that need to stay inside your head and not come out of your mouth. And that's one of those things. The judge has the discretion not to impose first offender, but you have to exercise that discretion. If you just simply say, I'm not going to do it, the cases are real clear that you are not, you're basically not exercising your discretion. Those cases will be diverse, reversed. Wade, in your court, if someone has already had a first offender... Will you allow them to also subsequently do conditional discharge if they're eligible? You know, so interesting you say that conditional discharge is a little bit different. It has to be sort of a drug offense and or there has to be a connection to a, an offense where drugs are at the root of it. I know a lot of people ask for it. I will tell you I've done it sometimes and I've not done it sometimes. And it just really depends a lot, a lot of times on the facts of the case and, and how closely timed, they're connected, etc. Well, just so everybody out there understands, though, a close reading of those statutes, they are not mutually exclusive. They're you not. can you can give a first offender if they've had conditional discharge. And vice versa. And vice versa. Now, just remember, with conditional discharge, that's 16-13-2, the it is only for possession of drugs or, a, or an unrelated drug, like a burglary or something that had a drug sort of basis. You cannot get a first offender for manufacturing marijuana. You cannot get a, a, for a excuse me, a, you cannot get a conditional discharge for manufacturing marijuana. Right. Or trafficking in cocaine, for example. Even possession with intent. It's right. got to be straight possession. And that's what our prosecutors and defense lawyers end up negotiating. Would you reduce this possession so I can get a conditional discharge? No, I won't. But you can use first offender. I, you know, to each his own. But, but sometimes we, we get involved in those conversations. Wait, next, let's talk about uh, something that came up just a couple of years ago, and that's behavioral incentive dates, or sometimes we call them BIDs, under OCGA Section 17-10-1, uh, under some subsections there. Um, first, talk, talk about the circumstances under which a, which a BID would come into play. So, folks, a BID is a fairly new invention, and it's actually already been modified significantly once. It says that if you are imposing a first offender sentence or a conditional discharge sentence, or this is the f defendant's first felony, and you're giving a straight probation sentence or a sentence with no more than 12 months in confinement or one year in confinement, you must set a behavioral incentive date of no more than three years in the future. Basically, you can give a sentence of 15 years on probation. But they get that behavioral incentive date. If they don't have any infractions and they've done the affirmative obligations, the, the probation is going to move to wrap up that probated sentence within three years. 
Yeah, and there are some good reasons behind this. It's based on some science about recidivism that most people who are first offenders, if they were, if they are going to reoffend, reoffend within three years, and that was the reason for giving this. So just understand it happens with um, offenses where you would normally either be able to give first offender or have given first offender a conditional discharge, and um, just always have in the back of your mind, okay, well, I need to be aware of a behavioral incentive date and that that might be something that's required in this case. Now, real quick on the 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 issue of appeal, I always explain to a defendant his or her uh, time limits on on filing a notice of appeal after a conviction. I have not previously done that on a plea. To be fair, in our next episode, we are probably going to give you some suggestions on that you might have to start doing that. You agree? I do agree. I, I think there's some new case law out there in Collier that. Uh, gives us some direction about that. So stay tuned. Thank you folks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us. Thanks as always to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council of Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle NJO and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tane Kell and do not reflect the opinions of the Council of Superior Court Judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us on our website at goodjudgepod.com or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.